0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. You know, we're not only in it, but we're so much closer to it, all the planets than even the nearest planets around other stars. And when I say we're closer, we're closer by 10,000 times, literally. And our solar system, I'm sure most of your listeners have seen, or they were introduced to the solar system in third or fourth grade with a a few pages in their science textbook, and a picture of all the planets in their orbits. And all those pictures are completely wrong for two reasons. First, in order to draw the solar system in a comprehensive way, it can't be to scale. So the planets look big compared to the distances between them, when in reality, the solar system is almost entirely empty. We didn't know back then that we had it all wrong. It took until the 90s to figure out, because the telescopes got better and the cameras got better and the computers could do the searching for needles in a haystack, what we found was the solar system is littered with small planets like Pluto. They totally dominate the population, but we didn't know it because we couldn't see far enough.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. We're going to explore the farthest reaches of our solar system today with someone who might be called a space-age Magellan or Christopher Columbus. Dr. Alan Stern has been involved in at least two dozen space missions, including eight on which he was the kingpin, or principal investigator, as NASA calls the role. He's perhaps most widely known in connection with the New Horizons mission to Pluto, the multi-decade undertaking he led to send the first-ever spacecraft to the last explored planet in our solar system, which is the subject, by the way, of his fascinating book, Chasing New Horizons. Time magazine named Alan one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2007, shortly after New Horizons left Earth on its 3 billion-mile voyage to Pluto. Yes, that's billion with a B. He's also been inducted into the Colorado Space Hall of Fame. Alan is also co-founder and chief scientist of the stratospheric balloon company Worldview and is in line for his very own suborbital spaceflight with Virgin Galactic in the very near future. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kathy. It's a pleasure. You and I have met and conspired and collaborated on a number of projects but never really shared life stories. And so what I'd love to start with is getting acquainted with the young Alan Stern. I know you were born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Maybe tell me a bit about your parents and growing up there, how long you lived there, what you remember of the events and influences that shaped you in your very early years.
0: Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, I did grow up in New Orleans, at least uh, my formative years. My uh, father took a big promotion that required us, him to move to a corporate headquarters of the firm he was with right as I was turning 12. And so I spent my boyhood, I like to say, in New Orleans, and I spent my adolescence in Dallas, Texas, and it really was an interesting dividing time from a brother and sister who were younger. It didn't work out as cleanly divided. But when I was a little kid, all I can ever remember is wanting to be involved in space exploration. I I don't ever remember wanting to be a fireman or anything else. And I think my parents thought I would eventually grow out of it. And they actually had some pretty serious conversations with me, questioning my decision.
1: Questioning your sanity. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. It was like, you should really be looking at some other careers. Try some other things on before you, you know, you've been like one note Nancy for the, <laughs> since we can remember.
1: Can you trace what the origin of that was? Was it Sputnik or the early astronauts or the stars over your head? or?
0: Well, there were two things going on. On my part, you know, I was a little kid during the birth of human spaceflight, and it was all over TV. And I remember, in particular, Gemini and Apollo missions and just being riveted to it and thinking, wow, what could be better than somehow having a job in this field, you know, when you grow up? I mean, it's larger than life and it's all high tech and, it, and it's, it's getting a lot of attention. It's changing the world for the better. And I just wanted to see if I could be a part of that. At the same time, my parents were very skeptical and somewhat for good reasons. First, no one in our family had done anything technical at all, not even a doctor. Secondly, I was a poor student. I was a slacker. And it really persisted until it came to a crisis when I was in my, uh, between my first and second years of college and a bit flipped as a result. But they, you know, they're looking like you're, you're trying to pick something really hard and you're like... Not even a mediocre student.
1: Was school just not interesting or you were just lazy or you're clearly not unintelligent?
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's both. It was really both. I was much more interested in reading books about astronomy and about space exploration than I was doing my homework. Ah. And because I knew that was where I was headed. And the GPA just didn't matter to me very much.
1: You hadn't made a connection between the quality or investment of work I do in school now and being able to get to that.
0: Yeah. And my, my parents uh, you know, like you talk the talk, but you're not walking the walk. You know, you're getting D's in math and you want to major in physics. <laughs> that doesn't add up. And at the same time, by the time this was all that taking place, I was a teenager about to go to college. And the whole manned spacecraft program and all of NASA was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And there were these huge post-Vietnam cutbacks across aerospace. The supersonic transport was canceled and the defense department shrunk and aerospace was laying off people in just blizzard like numbers. And my parents were like, you know, there's no future out there. You know, and I would say things like, well, that's deterring everybody from going in. So there'll only be a few of us who actually are ready for the job market.
1: That mindset touches on something that really struck me in your book. I laughed out loud at equal amounts at myself because the way you reacted at this moment that you tell about is so utterly not how I would have reacted. You tell about being 12 years old and watching Walter Cronkite, the grand, the grand MC of nightly news through all of your youth and, and mine, I'm sure. And he's commentating on some Apollo mission and he's got a NASA checklist or engineering manual in his hands. And you look at that and say... I'd love to have one of those. Wow, if NASA gave Walter Cronkite one, they'll give me one. I would never in a million years have presumed that since Walter Cronkite could get one, I would get one. Where did that kind of drive or where'd that hotspot come from?
0: I don't know if you did this because I used to write NASA all the time for information. Like the books that I get in the library weren't enough. The magazines that I could subscribe to weren't enough. So I want to go to the source. And they would send me, it doesn't matter who I wrote. They would send me the same things, these little pamphlets on food and space or something, you know, really mundane. And, and it had no technical depth. And it was like an impenetrable wall. I needed to know more. And when I saw Walter Cronkite hold that thing up, it's like those things exist. One can get them. <laughs> so sort I of started a quest to do that.
1: Did, did your first letter get a response or did you have to bounce around a little bit?
0: What happened was I wrote a guy named John McLeish. It's sad, he has now passed away, but he he really made a a very important impression on me. He was the head of public affairs at Johnson Space Center back in the 70s. And I wrote him and I said, I've read about this, you know, I've seen Walter Cronkite, he's got it. Um, Could I please have one? And he actually wrote me back and he said, Mr. Cronkite is an accredited member of the press. And if you were an accredited member of the press, I could give you one. But they only in those days they weren't like today. You could just email a PDF. It was a certain number of printed copies, and they had to hand them out responsibly. And I said, "Well, I'm 13 years old. How can I be an accredited member of the press?" <laughs> you know. And he said, "You need to start writing and publishing." And he said, "You know, if you wrote a book or if you were writing magazine articles." And I'm thinking, "I can't. Nobody's going to hire me." To, to write magazine articles, but I can write a book. I'll just write a book. And my grandfather donated his secretary to type it up because I was handwriting it, there were no computers. I wrote a book, which I, <laughs> it's, it's funny what I, what I called it, but I'd done a lot of reading, I kind of thought, I'm gonna call this book Unmanned Space Flight, an inside view. And how would I have an inside view at 13 <laughs> years old? <laughs> but anyway, I wrote this book, 150 pages, my grandfather secretary, bless her heart, typed the thing up, you know, with onion paper or whatever, carbon paper. So there were three copies and I gave one to my grandfather to thank him. And I kept one and I sent the other to John McLeish and it totally changed him. He said, if that kid wrote a 150 page book, it doesn't matter if it's any good. I'm sending him this stuff. And he sent me a box that was three and a half foot tall. Wow. With Apollo flight plans and handbooks and checklists for the lunar module and the command service module. And it made my head hurt. I mean, I, I, I would read for 15 minutes and go like, this is, I, I've suddenly stepped into this other world. And, but I, I devoured it eventually. And yeah. he kept feeding my habit all through high school. He would send me packages for every Apollo mission. Good on him. And Yeah, and it really, it showed me that even though I was like not liking my spinach, Meaning math's getting harder, science is getting harder. you know, it showed me that there was a future out there in a career, of something I really loved doing. And it got me through all that and got me, you know convinced me that I really had to like take a technical career because that's the only way I'm going to get in this line of work. I didn't want to be a journalist. No offense to journalists. It's just that that wasn't me.
1: It didn't turn the light switch on quite yet at that age about doing better at academics. That was a Not little quite. while later.
0: No, no, I went to a uh, university first year and made very poor grades and more or less flunked out. Part of it was that I had been to an elite boys school and then I was on a big university campus and there are lots of things to do and it was co-ed and I'm away from my parents.
1: University of Texas at Austin, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I was just otherwise distracted. <laughs> and, and then when I was, I was more or less washed out after one year, my parents said, um, you're not our problem anymore. If you're not in college, you should get a job. You know, so much for the allowance. You're welcome to come home and do the laundry, but you need to support yourself. Wow. So I went out and it was hard, but I I, you know, I found a job. I basically had a high school education and I, and I got a job on a loading dock, putting tires on trucks every night from 4 p.m. to midnight, you know, which was really good for my arms, but not much <laughs> else. And it paid minimum wage and I couldn't make ends meet. So, Kathy, I got a second job cutting fried chickens at a fast food restaurant. Oh, my goodness. I was afraid I'd cut my fingers off because, yeah, I'd do 60 an hour or get fired. <laughs> Even then, I, the two jobs I could not make ends meet. I got a third job, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. They used to pay college kids to sit in college classes and take notes for those who were sick or lazy. And then you would type them up and hand them in, and they would sell these notes. To, wow. to other kids today you just look at the professor's PowerPoint online but I, here I'm sitting in the college classes I was living in Austin but not going to the university but now I'm going to classes and just sitting in and I'm taking notes because I need to pay attention and I realize these classes are just not that hard you know you you lazy blah blah if you, know, <laughs> you
1: just pay attention
0: <laughs> you, you should really give this a try and I resolved I would go back to school my parents said they would pay for it. And I said to myself, I'm going to do nothing but school for one semester and see how good grades I can get. So I I ended up getting, you know, four A's and a B. And, And I was like, well, you see, you were just lazy. And then from then on, I was essentially a straight A student all the way through PhD.
1: Was your view still to just be involved in aerospace, space flight or manned space flight? Did the astronaut bug ever bite you?
0: Well, so first, I didn't know if I wanted to be in aerospace or in science, and that went back and forth in my head for 15 years. And I actually you know, took aerospace courses, but decided physics was harder. So I majored in physics and I got a side degree in astronomy. And then for grad school, I went and did aerospace engineering. And because ever since I was little, what I really wanted to do was be an astronaut. The only thing I really wanted to do, I didn't really want a desk job as an engineer or a scientist. It was like a means to an end. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, and this is still the 1970s, uh, late 70s. If I can show NASA that I'm good at different things, that I'm, you know, I'm good at different technical fields. I I had done very well in physics, except my first year. And then I had done really well in astronomy, even my first year, because I loved it. And then if I can show them, I can make straight A's in aerospace engineering and then work at NASA in the summers. And meanwhile, I was learning to fly and learning to parachute and doing you know, all these other things that I thought might pump up my resume. Um, but it was all aimed with, I really don't want to do nine to five. I want to be an astronaut. Um, of course, here we are at the other end of that story, you know, decades later. And although I got very close twice, I never got selected. So uh, it didn't, ultimately didn't work out. And sometimes I pinch myself, like how hard I tried, and it never worked out.
1: <laughs> well, the odds are certainly slim. I mean, it's, uh, you made it to the interview round twice, which is in every way possible saying you're exactly the kind of person we need. Then you get that finale of, but we only have you know, 13 seats or whatever the number is.
0: Right. Um, I interviewed once. For the class of uh, 1995-96, people like Mark Kelly and Mike Massimino were in. In fact, I met Mark Kelly. We went through interviews that week together and we're still close friends. But the second time was even more frustrating because while I was hoping to get selected as a mission specialist, um, I also tried to be a payload specialist.
1: And just so folks understand the, the distinction... Mission specialists are full-time NASA folks who do flight after flight, uh, sort of the whole flow. They're, I call them ship's company, if you will. And payload specialists are experts in various scientific experiments that come along as the consider it the visiting scientific party to do that one flight, maybe, sometimes a second flight if there's a campaign. But it's a guest scientist role.
0: Right. And there was a big, bright comet called Hale-Bopp that came around in the late 90s, and I was and am an expert in comets. It's actually what I wrote my PhD thesis about. I had uh, sounding rocket experiments that I was PI of. I had shuttle mid-deck experiments that looked at comets in the 80s and 90s. And I proposed to NASA that I could do a better job on comet Hale-Boppel, which NASA was putting a lot of attention on, if I did the experiment, because I could react to the data in a way that a mission specialist would more or less just be able to carry out a rote checklist version of the experiment and the NASA science folks thought that was a good idea. But then the obstacle was the astronaut office in Houston had to approve it because there had to be a reason that they bought that I could do better than they could do. So they they assigned Jeff Hoffman, a mission specialist of some renown.
1: Classmate of mine.
0: Yeah, as a matter of fact, Jeff formed some committee and they evaluated it for several weeks and had me come down to Houston and I got grilled. And then they wrote a report and said, there's no question he can do it better than we can do it. This is much more potential if he flies. And it was a specific flight and everything. And, and so I thought, this is it. I'm going to get a space flight. And the NASA administrator just happened to select a Canadian to fly with some experiments on that flight, which filled it up. And the head of science for NASA, who worked for the administrator, was fighting some other battle with him and told me, I can't fight your battle too. I'll lose the budget battle. And Ah. he just cut me loose. Ah. And and I was like so close. And then the other part of my life, which is flying robotic missions, was becoming more successful. And I got selected to lead New Horizons, which we can talk about later, which was a 15-year commitment. And I had to stop, you know, to really do New Horizons, I had to stop proposing to get a different job and leave space science for being an astronaut. So I had to put it down still, you know, at an easily selectable age to do the exploration of Pluto. And, And I did put it down until we finished Pluto. And that's when I started thinking again about flying in space.
1: Well, and we'll, and we'll come back to that part too, because you've got a really fabulously fun opportunity coming up ahead of you.
0: Actually three of them. You not
1: know that. I didn't know that.
0: recent of orbital flights now.
1: Oh, right. Boy, you're making up for lost time there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so much I want to dive into about New Horizons and what exploring the solar system means. But before we, before we dive into that, where you and I have more recently been collaborating, I think is the first big thing you jumped into after New Horizons, uh, the stratospheric ballooning Enterprise called Worldview. Tell me how that got started and, and how you came to found that.
0: Yeah, um, it's a wonderful story. At least I think so. One of the things we haven't talked about, and we don't need to, but except as context, is that during the uh, the second Bush administration, I was appointed to be the head of science at NASA headquarters and run the entire science program. Uh, I've always been an early adopter and kind of change agent. One of the things that I looked at and I had it studied was. Could we do the NASA Scientific Ballooning Program better by making it crude balloons? In other words, um, having man- people balloons. aboard. Yeah. Take people aboard. So, you know, in every scientific profession, the scientists do their own work. They don't do it by automating it. It's only in spaceflight where we're stuck because it's hard to launch people into space and it's expensive that we do it this kind of remote control way. And, uh, you know, volcanologists go to volcanoes and oceanographers, as you know, go on ocean expositions and you go down the list and every brand of science, the, the practitioners do it on location, except Except in space. space. And there's great advantages to that.
1: Back up for a second. And the what is it about scientific ballooning and the niche that it could fill in, in studying space or studying the earth?
0: So, um, it has certain advantages, and that's why NASA spends money flying robotic balloons that you can go to high altitude and see at wavelengths uh, that you can't see from the ground, but it's much less expensive than going all the way to orbit, as one example. Or for looking down on the Earth, it has the advantage that you're closer, and so you can see at higher resolution. So, and I can name other things as well, but those are two good examples.
1: So, looking upward, it's because you can work in wavelengths of light that don't make it through our atmosphere. right? And looking downward, you can have a finer scale view and you're moving more slowly than a satellite. So you also have some dwell time, right?
0: That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, anyway, so we looked at this and it just didn't work out. It didn't work out for NASA to invent that kind of system. There wasn't enough benefit for the projected cost, particularly the way NASA does things which can be very expensive. Um, because they want extremely high reliability from the start. Anyway, so that didn't work out. But after I left the federal government, um, I was getting involved in commercial spaceflight. I thought of this study that we had done. And after a couple of years, I thought I should try to really look at how you would do this as a commercial business, because I think there'd be a lot of interest for tourism and for science. And so I approached a man named Tabor McCallum, who you know, who at the time was the chief technical officer of a company called Paragon in Tucson, and I knew that his father had been involved as a scientist in the ballooning arena, and that Paragon had the technical skills to study this problem of how could you do this commercial? And I called Tabor up in May of 2011 and told him why well, I thought this was a cool idea, and he loved it. And within a matter of a month or two, I was appointed to the board of directors at Paragon, with the explicit purpose that we were going to not only study this, but then give birth to another company who ultimately became called Worldview and launched this as a project. And that's how it all got started.
1: Worldview has had a scientific dimension to it. You invited me to join the Scientific Advisory Board. Describe a little bit the kind of the idea of of a a racetrack pattern and and what that could let various customers do. Because I think of balloons, you know, you see them... The colorful balloon, someone's taking a morning crack of dawn ride in, and it kind of goes wherever the wind takes it, which That's right. would sort of suggest, well, but if I have a particular thing I want done, how do you make the balloon go to where my thing can be done? So
0: what Worldview has developed is a proprietary technology that allows us to steer the balloons in a way that we can keep them almost um, stationary over a border or a battlefield or a city or... Um, uh, forest fires or whatever you choose. And the way that we do that is by one of the aspects of the, these high altitudes in the stratosphere is that the winds blow different directions at different altitudes.
1: And we're talking how high?
0: Three to five times higher than an air airliner flies at okay. altitudes up to hundred thousand feet. Okay. So therefore, if you can control your altitude, which balloons do all the time with ballast and other techniques, then you could find layers with opposing winds if you have the right sensors on board, like a LIDAR. And so you launch the balloon and use the winds to take you where you want to go. And then when you want to stop, you use the countervailing winds and you basically fly a box.
1: Okay. Go up to go east and go down to go west or whichever or, way. Or vice versa. Yeah.
0: Right. Whichever it is that day.
1: Yeah. Cool.
0: great right. And we develop all the technology to do that. And this has great advantages compared to satellites because, as you said earlier, satellite surveillance just comes and goes. A satellite can look at a city for a few minutes and then it doesn't come back maybe for days because of its speed and the rotation of the Earth. But if you could persist and sit over a border or a battlefield or what have you, there are a lot of agencies and companies and foreign countries that would be interested in. as a tremendous market for this kind of remote sensing.
1: There's no propeller or propulsion on either the balloon or the package it's we carrying. No vertical
0: it. propulsion, in the sense but that yeah, it's just using. using
1: okay, no spinning propellers. No.
0: <laughs> right, and so we call these things stratolites, like the word satellites, but they're in the stratosphere. They look a lot like a satellite, both visually and, you know, they have solar arrays for power and batteries to to store the power for at night. And they have a thermal control system. If you look at a block diagram, they look like a satellite in both their external appearance and all the things you have to bring along. We have to have a pointing system, just like a satellite. We have to have command and data handling. But we can do this for very low prices compared to satellites. And then when you combine it with persistence over a region of interest, there's just no limit to the Apple. Lots of
1: uses. So when you're launching these balloons, give give folks a sense of the scale. When you get the balloon still, the payload is still on the ground. The vo- balloon is just about got enough gas in it to start lifting off. How tall is that?
0: It's big. It's uh, several hundred feet tall.
1: Okay. And then it rises up. When it rises up, it, it becomes a big round balloon that's like 100 that's feet.
0: A big round balloon because the atmospheric pressure keeps going down. Right. So a little bubble of helium... Or hydrogen we use both for different purposes expands as you go up and eventually you get this enormous structure that's hundreds of feet you know in diameter it's a basically a big teardrop Wow that's 10 million cubic feet wow of envelope carrying a payload that might be a thousand pounds or a hundred pounds or several thousand pounds up at these high altitudes and you can put a lot of sensors in a payload like that
1: a balloon like this is the source of my one and only UFO story. I was, back in my astronaut days, flying NASA's high-altitude research aircraft mission. So we were flying at, you know, sixty-five, sixty-seven thousand 67,000 feet. And we are coming back, heading east out of something we had done over West Texas. This was all civilian scientific, you know, atmospheric chemistry and remote sensing. And we're at 67,000 feet. And we know a thing or two about aviation. We know there ain't nobody higher than us. But there's this big, bright, white light at about our 11 o'clock position and a goodly angle above us. And I'm talking with my buddy in the front seat. We're, you know, kind of tapping our lips saying, I don't know, what do you think that is? And the air traffic controllers call us up and say, you know, target X degrees, this altitude is a, a weather balloon launched out of Palestine, Texas. So that was fascinating. We land not long afterwards and hop out of my flight suit, and I'm driving home. The radio airwaves are just burning up with people calling in this UFO, and the announcer is trying to tell them, we've got it confirmed from NASA and everyone else, FAA, it's a weather balloon, and there's just this swarm of, no, 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 it's a UFO, I know it is.
0: <laughs> so um, I'm curious, was that was that flight you were just talking about when you were flying the WB-57 Cambers?
1: Yeah, so this is, for those who don't know, NASA had, has a pair of modified 1950s era bombers that they made a big fat long wings so it can fly real high. I'm pretty sure it is the world's absolute slowest jet, but it's very well equipped for making atmospheric chemistry measurements and doing remote sensing, you know, monitoring things on the ground. And I got, I got the chance for a year and a half or so to fly in those.
0: So I, I got the chance to fly those too, because on one of the shuttle missions that I had experiments on to look at uh, the comment that I didn't get to fly in space. For. <laughs> I also proposed that I fly the back seat of the camera. And uh, as the shuttle flew over and observed with another instrument to add to the, to the fun and to the science. And so, uh, I got a chance to, I went to water survival school and ejection seat training school and got qualified to be the backseater as some responsibilities in that airplane and then did my science. Yeah. Um, and had a ball, but I think you flew high enough to fly in a pressure suit, which I did not.
1: Yeah, we were, as I say, we were, we were usually 65, 67,000 feet and wearing a full pressure suit, the bright orange pressure suit, just like shuttle astronauts used to wear on launch and landing. It was, it was quite fun. In fact, I think I'm the first woman the Air Force certified in that suit.
0: Well, I can tell you that when we were discussing doing this, I went down to Ellington Field.
1: Which is where that airplane is based.
0: Right. And I wanted to have a look at the airplane. And they took me out to it and it was on the tarmac, APUs started, the crew was inside and they took me out right next to the crew. The canopy hadn't yet come down and they said, that's a Steve Feaster, the driver in the front and that's Kathy Sullivan, the astronaut in the back. <laughs> and I, you know, I was just like, so jealous. <laughs> I got to get in this airplane.
1: It was a fun ride, but it was really, truly the world's slowest jet. I can promise you that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit. After getting oh so close twice to getting a chance to fly in space on a space shuttle, you're now really very close to getting to fly in space on a very different vehicle with an organization that probably could not be more different than NASA. Tell us how this came about and tell us what your plans are and when should we be watching for this grand adventure?
0: Well, um, that's a bunch of questions. I hope (laughs) so. This has its roots. In the time that I was at NASA headquarters as um, the guy in charge of space science, and in 2007, my boss, who was a NASA administrator, Mike Griffin, asked all of the associate administrators for ideas for how NASA could help encourage space commercialization. And that was hard in 2007. Uh, you know, now there's lots of commercial companies that yeah. are doing things in space science, particularly Earth observation, as you know. But at that time, that didn't seem like a good possibility. And we, we looked at that. But there was too much worry from the earth science director that they wouldn't get good enough quality data. The one idea that we came up with that we thought was a good one, I took to Mike Griffin. And I said, "These Virgin Galactic guys that are building a suborbital tourism vehicle. I wonder if we could use that for science. And he said, oh, that's a great idea.
1: So suborbital Means it means what? I mean, what is that flight trajectory like? It means
0: instead of going into orbit and staying in space until you decide to come down or atmospheric drag brings you to the ground, you just go up and right back down in uh, flights that last tens of minutes. But you go to space altitudes.
1: So, like a big parabola, like a, a, like a
0: big parabola, a,
1: a cannonball you fired like really high and, high and fast,
0: and it comes back down. Except this is very high to altitudes of 100 kilometers, 350,000 feet or more.
1: Okay. And that's what the sounding rockets that you worked with earlier in your career, they did the same kind of flight plan.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So because I had a background in sounding rockets, you know, I, I understood what kinds of science you could do with them. And we became convinced there was good science you could do from these vehicles. So Dr. Griffin was very interested in pursuing this. And I, went, I was sent to go meet with Richard Branson. And that's a story in and of itself, but not along the lines. Anyway, after I left NASA.
1: I don't know. I think I want you to tell it. <laughs>
0: I can tell that story if you want.
1: Sure. Meeting Richard so, Branson. So I'm, taken,
0: I'm taken into the, the American Museum of Natural History. And I went up there because Branson was to be there with Bert Rutan, the designer of his spacecraft, to, to show off in a press conference the design for what would become the Virgin Galactic Suborbital tourism vehicle.
1: Now, had they flown their early, early test flights at this point, or is this right off the drawing boards? They had
0: won the X prize by sending people to space. Okay. But they hadn't done any commercial flights. Okay. And now they're building their second generation vehicle. So Branson was going to be in the United States instead of, you know, overseas. So I went up to that event and we set up a, you know, my my chief of staff set up a meeting with whoever his counterpart was. And I go to a room where there's no one there except uh, my chief of staff and myself and Branson comes in with, with his guy and his guy says to Sir Richard, he says this is Dr. Alan Stern, he runs NASA's space science program and he wants to buy a hundred flights from you. And no kidding, ah! Branson filed <laughs> from ear to <laughs> ear and then dropped to his knees in front of me, picked up my right leg and with his coat began shining my shoe. <laughs> and said, what can I do for you, Dr. Stern?
1: <laughs> well, did you really have authorization to buy 100 flights?
0: Well, that's what we were... The whole idea was that because they were 10 times cheaper to fly on than a sounding rocket, that we could afford to buy them in large numbers and do a whole different class of science because you could fly unheard of numbers of suborbital flights.
1: So another first we need to put on your resume is the... Maybe not the first person, Sir Richard first Branson. Sir but... <laughs> Richard
0: Branson. So... Anyway, I left NASA, wanted to get involved in commercial space flight. And I knew the the power of this stuff for suborbital as well as for balloons, and actually got hired by Branson to help with their development. And I got hired by Bezos to help with Blue Origin's development.
1: At the same time?
0: Yeah, at the same time, and SpaceX too. Wow. And they knew that I was working for the others. I was just consulting. But anyway, so I got a really inside look at all of that, my old employer, the Southwest Research Institute, which is based in Texas, 3,000 employees, all doing different kinds of research, wanted to hire me back after I left NASA. And I said no several times. And finally they said, look, it's, just, it's whatever you want. You just write down what you want. And whatever you want, we'll do it. And so I thought, well, this is great. And I wrote down 10 things, you know, like what salary I wanted and where I wanted to live. But I also wrote down that I want you to start a manned suborbital program. I want to be the principal investigator, and I want you to buy Virgin Galactic space flights. And they said yes, and gave me a very large amount of money, you know, to have a competitive advantage for us to be first. And I contracted three Virgin Galactic space flights in 2011 and 2012, and six with another company called Xcor that unfortunately folded. So at that time, I like to tell people that Southwest Research had uh, nine space flights lined up in the next several years, which was more because the shuttle wasn't flying than the number of S- Soyuz flights available in Houston. <laughs> but you know as time went on, the schedules got stretched out, and now we're 10 years later, and now it's all becoming real. Last year, NASA resurrected the program that I first you know envisioned when I was there and put out a call for proposals for scientists to propose to go to space on a suborbital flight with their own experiment if they could justify that it was better done with them than with automation or something else.
1: Well, you had already made that pitch. Yeah,
0: so so we wrote a proposal, um, myself and two other scientists at Southwest, Dan Durda and Kathy Olkin, and we wrote that proposal and turned it in last June. It was peer reviewed in October, it's Sort of like your story, um, at back in 1978, one day in the middle of October, I get a phone call from NASA and it says, Do you still want to fly in space? <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I think that's their standard line, as if someone's got that dream and is going to forget it at some yeah, point. Is. This,
0: is a, this isn't a Houston person, this is a I NASA quarter's you know program manager, and I said, Yes, of course. And they said, well, this is going to get announced next week. You might want to have your company put a press release together. We're putting one together. The administrator is going to announce it. And so call up your public affairs people. So I did. And the first question they asked me was, who are we coordinating with besides NASA? Who are the other selectees? And I said, you know, they didn't tell me. I'll ask. So I called the program manager back and I said, who else are we coordinating with? And he said, well, just you. we selected one, you know, we've selected one proposal. We're kind of putting our toe in the water. It's you. And I thought to myself, it must have been something to be in the Mercury 7, but what if it had been the Mercury 1? (laughs) (laughs) Just pick John Glenn. He did all the flights.
1: So you get all all three flights that they offered?
0: Yeah. And Southwest put money in, so there was cost sharing. It was a good deal for NASA. And uh, we're going to fly at some point next year that's not clear probably in the middle of the latter part of next year. But there's still a little bit of a test flight program to finish. And I'm not going to be first, although I'm going to be near the front. And so I don't really have a date. And we're just starting to get serious now about a training plan and things like that.
1: And will you personally do all three or will your two colleagues each get one as well? What's the the thinking there on that point?
0: Well, first, we're lining up additional flights. So we're all going to fly. And I hope to fly a lot. And I will tell you that this really is a great, business case. I mean, the research you can do from these suborbital vehicles is spectacular and they're inexpensive. And I will tell you the toast that the three of us flyers make with a beer. All right. Because we're competitive with each other. And we toast first to 50, the first to get to 50 flights.
1: Oh, I thought you meant like 50 miles, the astronaut. No, first
0: first to get to 50 flights. All right, so that's a long way off, but we are lining up flights four, five, six, seven presently.
1: So, what would you say nowadays to a young person that's got a dream of spaceflight? How would you tell them to be thinking about the pathways open to them? Which well, I one- would say
0: first, follow your heart. If if it's a burning desire in you to do anything, doesn't matter what it is, follow your heart, because you, people excel at things they love and they're they're driven to do. Secondly, I would tell them, I I wish I were your age because it's getting (laughs) so much easier. And there's so many ways to fly in space that didn't exist when I was your age. Um, There was only one back then. You you could fly on a Russian or American spacecraft. That's it. And if you didn't get selected by NASA, there was no way to do it. You've got all these opportunities and they're getting better year by year. And then I tell them to really excel at whatever they choose to do you know, whether it's astronomy or oceanography or atmospheric science or geology, whatever, you know, be at the top. Don't be a dumb guy like me that, you know, had to flunk out of college to figure out that it's not that hard to make straight A's. You know, get get yourself in gear and be serious about it and set yourself apart.
1: You talked about your passion and excellence once you found your bearing in physics and math and things. Are there any parts of the skill set needed for your career you not natively good at that you had to just sort of double down and do extra reps to you know sort of build on your strengths but shore up your weaknesses kind of thing
0: i was the kind of physics student that could make a's but had to work really hard and i i actually lived with another student who was a close friend who was like super genius and, and you know he he could have a lot more of a, of a nightlife because he could do his homework assignments faster. So I wasn't entirely a natural, but I was plenty good enough to make straight A's or occasionally a B. But the thing that I really disliked was English class. I just hated it. I didn't like the reading assignments, you know, ever since I was in middle school and I didn't like the writing. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't need to know that stuff because I'm going to be doing math, and computer programming and science. And, and so I wasn't very good at it. I didn't want to be very good at it. I celebrated when I'd finished my last college English class requirement like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and, and then I went out into the working world and I found that a big part of being a real scientist is you got to write proposals, you got to write papers. And if they're not good, it affects your career negatively. And you have to be able to speak because you have to go in front of your peers and in scientific conferences, deliver your results. So you really do know how to, how to you do have to know how to organize your thoughts into writing and you do need no English. And I had to learn that kind of OJT
1: on the job. Yeah. You
0: no, know, because like a lot of my proposals got shot down because I didn't explain it well. And I'll tell you a kind of a funny story. The very first well, I took a senior independent studies in astronomy as I was finishing my undergraduate and I, and I was paired with the department director of astronomy at the University of Texas. He had been my advisor And I did a research project, and then I had to write it up as a paper. And when I went to write it up, I had no idea how to write a scientific paper. And I apparently did a pretty bad job of it because when he gave it back to me in December you know, with a grade, it actually had two grades on it. I got an A for the science, but I got an F for the presentation. And he gave me a little book called How to Write a Scientific Paper. And he said, I'm giving you an incomplete in this course. He goes, you have to write a better paper. Read this book figure it out and come back to me. I've suspended this, you can finish it in the spring, come back next semester, give me a good paper that actually explains what you did in a comprehensible way. And I managed to to, to do that and ultimately got an A in the course, thank goodness. But it was traumatic. I oh, think yeah. I wrote that paper by hand four times or something. And then I, I had to pay people to type it in those days.
1: Yeah. yeah. That
0: was expensive, but anyway, uh, that was a great gift, that little book. I still have it.
1: My father, the aerospace engineer, used to say to my brother and I frequently, it doesn't matter if you're the smartest thing on two feet on all of planet Earth if you can't express that intelligence to other people.
0: You know, that that's wisdom speaking.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, Alan, let's shift gears a little bit. You know, I've always thought this about you, but as I read Chasing New Horizons, it came through even more clearly. You know the solar system like everyone listening to this program maybe knows their living room or their backyard. I mean, it's just, it's just a place that you understand in great detail and great thoroughness. And you kingpinned, you led, you drove the really long 14-year effort to get the first, what was it, the first mission to the last planet, or as others had said, the last great first in exploring our solar system. But let's zoom back a little bit. And again, Sort of paint the picture for our listeners. Can you give a couple sentence way to think about our solar system? It's got nine different planets, but they're not all alike, have sort of different neighborhoods. Sketch that out so we can think about where we are here.
0: You know, um, and we, one thing we've learned in recent years is that solar systems are common. Um, That is stars with planets, but our solar system is, you know, we're not only in it, but we're so much closer to it. all the planets, than even the nearest planets around other stars. And when I say we're closer, we're closer by 10,000 times, literally. And our solar system, I'm sure most of your listeners have seen, or they were introduced to the solar system in third or fourth grade with a, a few pages in their science textbook and a picture of all the planets in their orbits. And all those pictures are completely wrong for two reasons. First, in order to draw the solar system in a comprehensive way, it can't be to scale. So the planets look big compared to the distances between them, when in reality, the solar system is almost entirely empty. There's a scale model of the solar system up in uh, Maine, which I have visited. The sun is at the center of this little town called Presque Isle. It's 150 feet across. It's a domed building that represents the sun. And then you drive down the highway three-tenths of a mile and you get to Mercury. And Mercury is smaller than my fist. And then you drive four tenths more of a mile and you come across a beach ball, says Venus. And you drive a few tenths of a mile and you get to Earth, which is the same size as Venus. And it has a little little piddly moon next to it. And then you drive a little further and you get to Mars, which is smaller. And then you drive a few miles and you get to Jupiter and it's 10 feet across. But you've driven miles to get to the biggest thing in the solar system and it's only 10 feet across. And then ultimately you drive 40 miles and you find another little thing, Pluto. I said that the solar system that you were taught was wrong in two respects. One was the scale wasn't properly shown, but the other is we didn't know back then that we had it all wrong, that it took until the 90s to figure out because the telescopes got better and the cameras got better and the computers could do the searching for needles in a haystack, which people, most people aren't very good at, What we found was the solar system is littered with small planets like Pluto. We call them dwarf planets. And there are four rocky planets, Earth, Venus, Mars, Mercury. And then there are four giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And there are already known dozens of dwarf planets. They totally dominate the population. But we didn't know it because we couldn't see far enough to see anyone except Pluto, which was the first discovered of this population. And in fact, we wanted to go explore Pluto, we scientists, and we're trying to make the case for NASA to invest money because Voyager didn't go there and kept trying and missing for about a dozen years. And what really made the difference was the discovery that Pluto isn't just interesting for its own sake, but it's the biggest and the brightest and the best known of a whole population of little planets. And that caused the National Academy of Sciences to rank the exploration of Pluto and that region, which is called the Kuiper Belt, number one priority for funding. And that's how, ultimately, New Horizons got started.
1: So there's an interesting contrast. I spoke with Bill Nye a while ago and at arguably a similar juncture in his career. He's an aer- aerospace engineer. He's working at Boeing. Uh, he's finished a big hydraulic design. And his boss proposes to him that he jump onto this exciting new project. It's a brand-new airplane, tip-to-tail, the whole thing. Uh, it's going to be the 767. And Bill asked him a couple of questions. It's planned. It's The starting phases are funded. It's, But it's going to be this long integrated design and development, probably 12 to 14 years before there's an actual airplane. And Bill's take looking at that prospect was, I don't want to spend the next 14 years of my life doing PowerPoints and revising documents and proposals. You did that. You and a team of people spent 14 years thinking, rethinking, recalculating. Tell me what that was like. How did you get through that? Was that really all that you did the whole time or were there other side projects? What kept you going?
0: I worked on a lot of things we all do. Um, I was simultaneously working on six or seven space missions at once. New Horizons was the centerpiece because I was put in charge of it. But let me tell you how that story evolved. Well, there had been a group called the Mars Underground that had been very effective with young scientists, convincing NASA to send robotic missions to Mars. And we modeled ourselves after those people who had done it a decade before successfully. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. And the book tells the story. I won't tell the whole story. I couldn't in an hour long (laughs) podcast, but we kept trying and getting close. And then something would happen and we'd have to start over. And this happened five or six times over 12 years. And finally, and there's a long story behind it, but finally uh, NASA got serious about sending a mission to Pluto because the decadal survey that I just spoke about was showing how important it was. And NASA decided they would make a competition. And I, my goal was to see what Pluto looked like because I had done a lot of research on Pluto and I had always been attracted by the frontier, by things that were unknown. And I knew how prestigious and how scientifically amazing it was for all the people that had got to be on the first missions to Mars and first missions to Venus and Pluto was the only game left in town. You know, it's the last train to Clarksville. And so I just wanted to be a part of that. And then through something I didn't expect, an opportunity came to propose, and the major players in spaceflight were both calling me saying, "Would you lead our proposal?" The Jet Propulsion Lab and the Applied Physics Lab. I had to choose between them. Um, and I picked APL.:
1: You chose David over Goliath.:
0: The riskier choice in some ways, But for reasons that I won't describe, it's in the book, I chose APL, and it worked out. We won, and we pulled the project off without getting canceled, and there were some bad scrapes in that. And if you can imagine, by the time that we won it in 2001, I had been working on this for 12 years, one sense or another. And it really was, I thought, the biggest contribution I could make in my career, even bigger than being an astronaut, although maybe not as much fun, because There would only be one first mission to the last planet as you said if that was the legacy of my career besides all the egg-headed papers i'd written and all the you know instruments i'd built and things that i've been pi of in charge of in other words um on robotic missions they were always a little piece of this mission or you know the spectrometer on that mission or a small experiment flying in the cabin on the space shuttle this was really big leagues uh, the first mission, not just of the last planet, but the first of a new class that we discovered, and we had a great team. And it just seemed to me that this this was something I would like to be able to look back at the end and say, our team changed the world a little bit for the better. We got this done.
1: So there's some really dramatic constraints, you know, some gotta gotta get it done in in the timing and, and geometry of all this. That I just want to give a broad brush of that so people can appreciate the. Teensy little needles you had to thread. For one thing, the only way to get there with kind of rockets we've got was basically to be sure you could time a flyby past Jupiter. So you need to get Earth and Jupiter and Pluto in the right place, lined up in the right way. And that happens once every, what is it, 175 years?
0: No, that's a different number. That's when all the planets line up so you can do a grand tour. Okay. Every 13 years there are three years where you can use Jupiter to get to Pluto. And then you have to wait 10 years.
1: You've got to hit that three-year window or wait another decade. So Earth, Jupiter, and Pluto lined up just so every once every right. 13 years. Right.
0: And the timing was such that you know we, NASA had a call for proposals in 2001. We proposed. We got selected in 2001. Those three opportunities were in 2003. Couldn't get it built in that little amount of time. Nobody had ever done anything like that. The next one was in 2004, looked impossible. And the last one was in January of 2006. And um, even that, five years, is a breakneck pace. Like Voyager took you know, a decade to build, and that's pretty typical. Yeah. So a lot of people think, well, you can't get this done in time. You know, but we said we're going to run for the fences and try, and we think we've got a good shot at it. We're just going to work nights and weekends for five years. <laughs>
1: That's all. Now, so how does I have to ask, because you don't talk about this much in the book, that kind of intensity, I think lots of people in the space program know, but that comes at a cost to family.
0: It does. Very much so. My daughter, Sarah, was in high school during those years. And I was home on the weekends, but usually exhausted and working at my desk. And so as a result, when she tells stories about her in high school, I don't remember them. Um, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't remember them. Her going to high school is a blur for me.
1: What's her recollection and thought about New Horizons now with the passage of time?
0: Well, um, you know, she's in politics and, and journalism and sort of at the interface of the two and not interested in science. I mean, not disinterested, but it's not her thing. And, you know, she never thought of what New Horizons was really about so much as she thought you're just a guy that's on the computer all the time or on an airplane, you know, and that's your life its computers and airplanes. And then when she was there at the flyby of Pluto, she was floored and in tears over, you know, what we accomplished, like a lot of people were. But for her, it was personal because it was her dad, you know, leading it. And my other two kids also, but after I left NASA and we got New Horizons in flight, I I made a resolution to myself that I would not let Kate's high school and Jordan's high school be the same blur. Good for you. I, I spent cute. more I, at the cost of my career. I spent those years. You know, you only get to do that once. Is that
1: yeah? So the other statistics, I just wanted to get out there um, because they just absolutely astonish me. So you've got to get this once every 13 years geometry and launch within that time frame, and then you've got to aim. Well, wait a minute. You're going to go three billion miles.
0: Nine and a half years.
1: Nine and a half years, and you've got to hit an aim point near Pluto that sets you up to do the, the flyby path. And you have to arrive at that flyby point, having gone 3 billion miles in nine and a half years. You have to arrive within 60 miles, 60 out of 3 billion, and you have to arrive within nine minutes out of 9.4 years. And you have these fabulous comparisons in Chasing New Horizons, that if you translate that to earthbound terms, this is like hitting a golf ball in Los Angeles and getting a hole-in-one in in a soup can in New York City, or like hopping in an airplane in New York City and flying all the way to Los Angeles and landing within four milliseconds of when you predicted you would land. I mean, that's crazy. How do you do that?
0: Uh, We hired the, the best navigation team we could find. Uh, They're at a company called Kinetics.
1: The math exists. It's orbital mechanics and stuff, but do they write the the software Is stuff they've created to do this kind of navigating?
0: Yeah, but but I also have to say that there's an advantage to being the first mission to the last planet in that all the other planets, we cut our teeth as an industry, learning how to do interplanetary navigation and communication and all the skills. And so, you know, Kinetics did... Something un- utterly unbelievable and that had never been done before for New Horizons and Pluto in terms of this kind of accuracy. But they stood on the shoulders of giants, the people who invented all this in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and
1: did Voyager and the Grand Tour and, they, they and
0: turned and- it into practice in the 2000s and the 2010s. So it's really all the people behind them, too, yeah. over all those years.
1: So New Horizons is cruising out towards Pluto for nine and a half years, it's going 10 times faster then the Apollo missions went to the moon. It's like 31,000 miles an hour. What does the team on Earth do for those nine and a half years? Go home and That's sleep? a very
0: common question. Most people would ask me when we were flying, you know, it's a decade. It's like, do you even work on New Horizons? It's like, you know, because we also, somehow the story got out widely in the public, which is true, that we had invented this technique called hibernation for the spacecraft. It saves wear and tear, and it saved a lot of money because we didn't need a big flight control team well, the spacecraft didn't need to be babysit when it was hibernating. But, and so people would think the spacecraft's hibernating, you must not have anything to do. But that's not true because when Voyager did their equivalent mission to explore the outer planets, the giant planets, their team was 450 people to fly the spacecraft, plan the mission, do the science and everything that went with it. And we did it on less than 50 people one-tenth as many but we had to do all the same things so the way that we did that because we had strong cost constraints nasa would only give us so much money we had to break the mold and what we figured out was over 10 years we could do the same number of labor hours with just 50 people spread over 10 years what they would do with 450 people over one year to plan a flyby so we were busy the entire 10 years like crazy and I remember my mission operations manager at one point, Alice Bowman said, this is like a 10 year sprint paced marathon. We work round the clock in anonymity for 10 years for this you know, very brief flyby.
1: So what, what was the nature of that work? What, what exactly were you doing?
0: Well, very long list of things. First, we had to navigate the spacecraft to that destination that you just talked about that involves a lot of tracking, and not just radio tracking, but also a lot of what's called optical navigation. Where we take pictures of Pluto against the star fields, send them home, have those analyzed to figure out where you are and where Pluto is relative to you. Then at the same time we were navigating, we had to operate the spacecraft and we had to conduct all the crew science. And then we had to put in place the plans for the flyby and all the backup plans for the flyby. And we had to put in place all the public affairs plans for the flyby. And we had to train our team for a one shot. It's going to work or it won't with, you know, what you would call integrated simulations. We call ORTs for operational readiness tests.
1: So basically rehearsals.
0: Dozens of rehearsals, some of them lasting a week at a time. And they require enormous amounts of preparation to be ready for. Then you execute it. Then you analyze what you did right and wrong and have lessons learned. And you improve your software or your techniques. And then you go to the next one. Um, and we did dozens of those. And all of that was all of those different tests were take, had to be planned and proven and go through review panel cycles and things like that. At the same time, we kept discovering more moons of Pluto and realized there was a hazard for unseen things that we might hit and turn the spacecraft into smithereens. So we actually so you up- didn't
1: you didn't know that when you started. Did you- no. You know, Pluto and it's one moon, but it-
0: you- And then in 2005, my team went looking for moons with the Hubble Space Telescope found two more. And then we had another in 11 and another in 2012, and they were just popping up all over.
1: So now who knows what's out there and what if we hit right.
0: something? And so then we had to plan, people said, well, what can we do about it? And I said, well, I'll tell you what we're gonna do about it. We're gonna, as we drill down on Pluto in the last few months, we're gonna use our cameras to look for more moons, dust rings, things that could hurt us, and we might have to divert the trajectory to a safer plan. But it took years to plan the Pluto flyby, so we had to plan four variants: one for the nominal, and for three bailouts. We called them um, later; they were renamed because NASA didn't like the word bailout, they renamed, <laughs> and I made up an acronym called Shabbat for safe haven. <laughs> it's safe haven bailout trajectory. Anyway, so. We had to, in the end, plan and certify four different flybys, have them all in the can, not knowing which one we would ultimately execute. So they had to be independently as bulletproof as the main one. Which one did you use? We ended up not finding more moons or rings and flying the best course. None of the- None of the bailouts. So all that work was, you know, it's just like a lot of what you did. You prepared for many kinds of, of emergencies that never happened.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Um, but fortunately, that preparation was very important because we learned to work as a team. And then just before we got to Pluto, we really did have an emergency and we almost lost it all. And because we had learned to work as a team, we were able in very short order to save our grits from d- literal disaster. After flying for nine and a half years, 10 days from Pluto, we lost contact with the spacecraft and we managed to not only get it back, but then we found out all of the flyby software that had been put up over six months, had been erased. Oh, no. Erased all that with three days till the flyby began.
1: So how long was the fly? what you call the flyby? Because I, I said earlier, at 31,000 miles an hour, I would think it's as fast as you blink. But for the science you were doing, it wasn't.
0: So All the core science happened in one week. Okay. Actually, not a nine-day load. A load meaning a computer program, okay. one nine-day load. Um, we, of course, we started with all the hazard analysis and navigation months out, but all the pretty pictures and the other co- kinds of data types that you, we got that really told us what it was about all happened in one nine-day span from seven days before flyby till two days after.
1: So, you know, we're accustomed to seeing astronauts do something on the International Space Station in real time, you know, watching it as it happens, or, or maybe some data from Perseverance taking minutes to get back. You had to make decisions about the data system and the telemetry, the radio system to send data back and, and the antenna that put you in a really different place. It, it took you guys, after all that you'd been through, 14 years to just get to the launch pad and nine and a half years to get to the planet. It was like another year to a year to get the data back
0: almost a year and a half, yeah. And here's why. When NASA decided they would fund a mission to Pluto, they only had a certain amount of money. And it turns out that the amount of money, if you adjusted for inflation to compare it to Voyager, which is the most comparable mission, was only 20% as much money as Voyager. So imagine we had to reinvent in a credible way how to do this thing, not only in half the time of Voyager, but for two diamonds on the dollar. and. We did a lot of brainstorming for ways to save money, and one of them was hibernation that I talked about earlier, because we got a team size down in flight. For 10 years, we could have a small team instead of a big team. We had many ways, but another was one day it dawned on me that if we could make a spacecraft work and succeed after nine and a half years, there was very little chance we were going to lose it over the next year or two. If you build it for that reliability and it's already worked that long, it, the odds are it's going to work. So then I realized that means that we can uh, transmit the data slowly, which means we can have a, a much less expensive communication system and power system to power the transmitters. And people thought that was a risky thing to propose to NASA, to take 16 months to get the data back. But actually, NASA loved it. You know, we showed that it was technically feasible and there wasn't any risk and we would send the most important stuff first and the least right. important last, and and we had ways to compress the data so that if we, for example, had a fuel leak and we're running out of fuel, we could speed things up by sending somewhat compromised, you know, like a lot of your cell phone images, you compress them to send them to Twitter, and they still look really good. So we worked all that out, and as a result, we spent a year and a half getting data back from Pluto, and then when we went to our Kuiper Belt object in 2019, Eric we were much further from the sun, so the data rates were lower, took us, well, it's three years now. We're still sending data back. Wow. All about New Horizons is everything about it is about delayed gratification.
1: <laughs> so in real time, in the course of that week, uh, that core scientific week, did you guys see any images during that week?
0: Sure. Yeah. We, and for weeks on approach, went okay. from fuzzy Hubble-like image from far away to getting starting to see look there's all these features on the surface and every time it rotates we could see it from 360 degrees and week by week the images would improve and then the day before the flyby we got the first close images and our jaws were on the ground just stunned
1: what sticks with you is the most amazing feature you saw
0: i remember what i said at the press conference because we we unveiled this image that revealed pluto and i said Ladies and gentlemen, there's 500 people in this auditorium and cameras everywhere. I said, ladies and gentlemen, the solar system saved the best for last. Oh, cool. And, and it turns out, you know, there's a general rule of thumb in planetary science that we've just discovered by going a lot of places that, that bigger places are usually more complex, like the Earth and Mars are more complex than asteroids. And Pluto's somewhere in between. But we've seen a lot of similar size things to Pluto in the past that are moons of the giant planets. And most of them are scientifically interesting, but they're kind of boring. If you, you know, They look like big ice balls. And Pluto has the very first images you say, wow, there are mountain ranges all over this thing. There are volcanoes on the surface. There's a giant glacier. Who ordered that? It's the size of Texas and Oklahoma, the biggest glacier in the solar system. And there's an atmosphere and it's got clouds and hazes. And there are all these tectonic features across the surface and places that look Where? flooded.
1: Faults and things are happening. Yeah,
0: and liquids used to flow there. And this is in five minutes of data analysis, we realized Pluto rivals the Earth and Mars in complexity. This is stunning. You know, we, we if we had these private polls and predictions and bets with each other, would we found, find which of these 10 things might we find? Turns out we found all of them plus things we didn't think of in our imagination. <laughs> it was just stunning. And it was like taking candy from a baby because every image was just knock you on the ground. And it's going to be worth 50 scientific papers. Every image.
1: There, there are ice mountains, right? There are
0: ice mountains, exactly. And they tower higher than the Rockies. They are made of water ice, but they're, they're frosted in really exotic ices like methane and, and uh, uh, nitrogen ice. Wow. On their, on their tops. But wow. we know they're water ice on the inside because we found... First of all, the, the, the methane and nitrogen isn't strong enough to build them out without sinking under its own weight. And water is very common. so you, we expected they were water ice, but we later proved it because we found some places where the winds had blown the nitrogen and the other frosting off, and you could see the bedrock. and our spectrometers could fingerprint it as water ice.:
1: Wow. That is just amazing. So where is, where is New Horizons now? She's, she's yes. cruised past Pluto. She's out past, in the Kuiper Belt still or past it?
0: No, we're still in it. And in fact, we are twice as far from the sun almost as Pluto now.
1: Six billion miles.
0: Yeah, not quite twice, but almost. Okay. Wow. And, and still in the Kuiper Belt, we use big telescopes to look for new flyby targets. And we find a lot of Kuiper Belt objects along our path and we look at them. Um, many times per year. We, we stop to look at things that are, we're passing and we're looking for something we can pass super close uh, like we did in 2019. And one thing that we're discovering is Kuiper Belt goes up further than we thought. We're finding Kuiper Belt objects that are at almost unheard of distances, meaning we'll still be in the Kuiper Belt the rest of the 2020s, very likely.
1: How long do you think you'll have the funding and support to keep New Horizons running?
0: Well, the spacecraft's in perfect health. I mean, it really it's amazing because we do a, every year we do an annual trending review of all the engineering parameters, 40,000 different measurements and all the instruments and all the subsystems work perfectly. Just like when they launch, it's boring. We have flat lines for tracking, you know, we like track.
1: that kind of boring.
0: We do. Yeah. Um, but everything works. There's no reason for it to stop working unless it runs out of fuel or power because the it's nuclear powered and there's a radioactive half-life. You get less power every year. So, we have the fuel and power to run it into maybe as late as the end of the next decade, maybe 2040. If we get lucky, that's a long time still. Um, so the main question is if nothing breaks that we don't expect. How long does NASA want to keep funding us? Cause they shouldn't fund us if we're not doing good stuff, you know, they, they could use that to do something else usefully and, and it's taxpayer money. Yeah. So we have to compete every third year with all the other, Extended missions, and those that come out on top get funded, and those that come out at the bottom get a pink slip. <laughs> you know, and you get six months to uh, button up your your work and turn the spacecraft off and archive the rest of the data. So we're about to do that next year. All right. And, and uh, my intention is for us to be at the top to do really innovative, worthwhile stuff. But only the review panel will be the judge, not the principal investigator. Or
1: the <laughs> the PI is a little biased. So uh, you, you plan all those four bailout trajectories, the just-in-case trajectories, as you are heading towards Pluto for the flyby. And one of the stories I really loved in your book is all the way back at the moment of launch. Uh, you launched on a, was it Atlas 5. Atlas 5. an Atlas V, Delta V? Atlas V. Atlas V. And you had not had experience with the Atlas V team before, personally. And you talk about when you finally get all done with your PR and press and things, making your way out to the beach where a lot of the launch team is gathered and having a bit of a party and a celebration, and there's this big bonfire and what were they fueling the bonfire with?
0: So, you know, in space flight, I've been on a lot of teams and and led a bunch now, and it's like baseball. People have all these superstitions and traditions and things they do. It's probably because you know that you're not in complete control of this big thing. And, you know, launch day, it's, you're going to remember it's the rest of your life no matter how it works out, whether it works or doesn't work and there's not much in between usually. And I, you know like when I was first doing sounding rockets, we had certain traditions and I followed those out of superstition, not really superstition, more just the power of community that you follow these traditions. And then when, when we got to the launch party the day that New Horizons set sail and it was off to a good start and we'd made contact with the spacecraft and there's a, a big hotel where, the launch company paid for a big party, and there were hundreds of people there from the team and their families.
1: Because everyone's been immersed in this for months and months and months. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's worked. Yeah. Were, it's like, we're done. The, the rocket people are going home, right? After this party, they're done. They're going to go do some other launch. And, uh, and we had done our traditions around the launch, and we're at the party, and uh, one of the vice presidents of that company, Lockheed Martin, came up to me and said, Alan we have a tradition after a launch. um, You should go out on the beach and see what this is all about. And I get out there and there's a bonfire they built in a trash can. And I said, well, what's the tradition? And they said, we have all these malfunction procedures. When it works, we don't have to use them. So we burn them just because we're so happy. We didn't, And we're going to give you as the principal investigator, the honor of throwing the first malfunction procedures book in the bonfire.
1: One of the hooks there is these are not standard checklists like you print a hundred of them. They're particular to every single launch. It's a use once.
0: And it was a lot of fun. I had never heard of this tradition, even though I'd been on a lot of launches and different types. And I liked it so much that the night that we finished the Pluto flyby, I took my team outside of a Sheraton hotel and we lit a bonfire in a trash can. We got permission from the hotel. It was far enough away. And we threw our, we didn't have a malfunction procedures books that were appropriate, but we did have a emergency communications plan. The things we were going to say if it didn't work and it all worked perfectly. So we stood out around that swimming pool and burned them <laughs> kind of bookends of launch and, you know, our accomplishing the main mission.
1: I was hoping you had bookended that tradition with either the, the bailout trajectories or some other appropriate yeah, combustible exactly. substance. Yeah.
0: And, and the fun thing for me is that there are pictures of both those bonfires.
1: Oh, that's fabulous.
0: The, the picture of at least one of those two pictures is in the book. Maybe both.
1: The launch one is in the book. Well, Alan, we have covered... Well, we've covered the entire solar system. And...
0: <laughs> just about. <laughs> we didn't talk about Mercury, but just about everything.
1: Ah, well, we'll save something for another visit because I've I've uh, already put my arm around your wrist and twisted a bit to be sure that you will come back and join the podcast again after your your first suborbital flight and tell us all about it. I know we won't be first in line, but put us up near the top of your list if you would.
0: Kathy, I'd love to do it, and uh, but what I need to do is get with you before I fly and ask you to mentor me a little bit on first space flights.
1: Deal. Absolute deal. Glad to do it. Glad oh, that, to do it. Thank you. Well, it's been a delight talking with you as, as it always is. Thank you for sharing so many more of your stories. And for everyone on this podcast, keep following because we'll get Alan back and he'll have even cooler stories to tell. Really
0: fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Alan, very much. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com. This podcast
0: is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.